we're going to be starting something new. We've been in kind of just a, an in-between stage for a little while, and it kind of gravitated into just some practical helps for the Christian life, and we've dealt with uh, many different topics. I might want to go back and uh, rehash all of those because we're moving on. We did talk about last week uh, about the peaceful Christian life and how as Christians uh, we have access to many things that should make for peace if we avail of them. We have peace with God. We have the peace of God. And if we live our lives according to the principles of God, uh, we should have a much more peaceful life just because we are living according to uh, the things that God had intended for us to do. If we live our lives uh, honestly before God and men, if we uh, live pure by God's uh, uh, principles and his word, it's going to cause us to uh, avoid a lot of the things that cause chaos and difficulties in our lives. So just because we uh, allow God's word and his will to order our lives, it's going to, uh, to help our life to be more peaceful as well. And so those were the three things we looked at last week. Uh, but this week, what we're going to start into is I want to start looking at uh, somewhat of character studies, maybe, I don't know. But I want to start looking into uh, the kings of Israel. And so we're going to start out looking at uh, what brought about the kings, and we're going to look at Saul for a few weeks, and uh, David for a few weeks, and Solomon for a few weeks, and then um, we'll see what happens as we go onward through some of the other kings through the divided kingdom, and just learn some lessons about uh, how God works through his people, and um, there's just so much... Um, good things that we can learn, good application that we can make through the lives of the kings and seeing what God does and seeing their mistakes. I've said a lot of times that uh, we can learn a lot from a good, bad example. And there's plenty of bad examples in there, and we can see uh, where they go astray. We can see some of the, the things that lead to the issues. And with that, we can learn from it because uh, there's kind of a parallel that we can can draw between the kings and us today and that might seem a little bit weird because none of us are kings, right? But the kings were God's instrument, God's tool, God's representative to his people. And as we look through all the different kings that are recorded in Scripture, we find that they have a profound impact on the world around them, okay? And so whenever they are... <clears throat> excuse me, whenever they have a godly king in Israel or Judah, that it has an effect on those who are around them. And so they are meant to be a witness. They are meant to be uh, a leader. They're meant to have an impact. And with that, I believe we are meant to as well. We may not have an impact on an entire country like uh, King David or King Saul did, but we should have an impact on the world around us because we are representing God. We are uh, an example to people. We are an instrument that God can use if we will yield ourselves to him. And so how we live according to what God has revealed in his word is going to make a big difference in our lives and in the lives of those who are connected to us. Okay, And that's why a lot of these lessons carry over. The things that uh, a man like Saul did, and you say, well, he was a king. He was a ruler, he had an army, he fought battles, he killed people, right? You say, well, how does that relate to me? Well, he was still a man who should have known God, who had uh, spiritual leadership in his life. He had Samuel there. 
Uh, he had the revelation of God's will and God's word to him. And oftentimes he chose to ignore all of that and to go his own way. And there was a lot of people who were affected by it. And there was a lot of uh, complications because of it. And the same thing happens in our lives as well. We have, uh, we have plenty of resources to guide us and to direct us in the things of God. But if we ignore them, then it's going to cause adverse effects. It's going to cause unwanted consequences in our lives. But then likewise, if we uh, set, our, set our lives to seek after God, if we trust his word, if we uh, set, set out to do the things that please him, it's going to have a much better effect on our lives and the lives of those around us. And so I want to start out today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel. I don't know if I said that yet. 1 Samuel chapter number 8 is where we're going to begin. So we're going to start a study in the middle of a book. We're going to start a study about kings, somewhere besides kings, right? But I want to start out with this with a bit of a backstory, a bit of a, a history to give us some context. Because hopefully uh, we've been around long enough, we've been around the Bible enough, we have a little bit of an idea about what's going on. But I want to give you somewhat of a timeline of what's going on. Because Israel hasn't always had kings, right? And what brought them up to this point in time, we find uh, we can go back to Abraham's a good place to start. And I've got a timeline that I've written out here that's got ballpark figures to help us to know how this is played out. But uh, Abraham was about 2000 BC, okay? 2000 years before Christ. And so something neat about that, Abraham existed about as far away from Christ as what we do. Abraham was about as many years before Christ as we are after Christ. It's kind of neat, isn't it? So Jesus is halfway between us and Abraham. Um, but anyway, uh, Abraham uh, received the promises of God, and God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and said he was going to make him into a great nation, and all the, all the nations of the earth would be blessed because of him. And uh, we come on down to 1500 B.C., and we have Moses. Abraham has grown to be a mighty nation, but he's done it in captivity in Egypt. And God raises up Moses, and this is 500 years after Abraham. He raises up Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And uh, <clears throat> at this time, Israel is meant to be a theocracy. Y'all know what a theocracy is? Theocracy. Ruled by God. Okay? So they were meant to have God as their king. Okay? That's basically what it means, a theocracy. God is their king. And so God was leading the people through Abraham, or not through Abraham, through Moses, through the, the Levites and the priesthood and different things, uh, through Aaron even. And they were meant to be a theocracy. God was ultimately the king of the people of Israel. And he was constantly taking extremely good care of them. They were murmuring. They were unfaithful. They were uh, wavering in their trust of God. And so God led them out of Egypt. He led them through the Red Sea. He sustained them in the wilderness for 40 years after they failed to trust him at Kadesh. Right? Sustained them for 40 years. And then after all of those who had refused to trust him at Kadesh had died in the wilderness, he then brings them into the promised land. 
He defeats Jericho in a, a spectacular manner, and then goes on to defeat all of those, uh, all the pagans, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, uh, whose iniquity was filled, right? And so we look at it and say, well, God's causing all these countries to be destroyed, all these people to be destroyed. It was because of the, the depth of their depravity, their wickedness, that God allowed them to be overrun. Kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah, it came to a place where God no longer had patience with them. Yeah. came to a place like that of uh, the days of Noah. The land of Canaan was filled with extremely wicked pagan people, idolatry, uh, child sacrifice, uh, many uh, fertility cults with uh, very immoral sexual practices involved in their worship and things. And so because of what was going on in Canaan, God judged them by allowing them to be pushed out of the land and Israel was to take over and God was to be their king. Okay, And God allowed um, Joshua to lead them in that conquest. They didn't fully obey and they left Canaanites behind, which ended up being stumbling blocks and tripping points to them. And after Joshua died, who was who was the ruler? Who was the leader? After Joshua, any idea? It's a trick question. Nobody was. Nobody. So Moses said, "God, I know I'm going to die. I know I can't lead your people into the promised land, but raise somebody up." Because he had a burden for the people. And so God raised Joshua up. And then whenever Joshua died, nobody took his place. And so whenever um, all of those who were alive during Joshua's time, when they all passed on, the next generation that hadn't known uh, Moses, that hadn't known Joshua, that hadn't seen some of the miracles that God had wrought whenever uh, they were conquering the promised land, they pretty well started to forget God. That leads us into the time of the judges, right? In the time of the judges, it was characterized by what verse? Anyone know? Who did that which was right Every man did that which was right in their own eyes. And God was meant to be their king. Uh, each of the, the tribes had their own heads. It was kind of uh, like tribal chiefs. Each tribe would have uh, rulers and have uh, leaders over them. They had somewhat of a system. But there was no main government over the, all of the people to hold them together. There was no cohesive government. So there was 12 loosely connected tribes, each with their own heads. And with that, they were all, by tribes and by individuals, tasked with keeping the law. They were all tasked with remaining faithful to God and trusting Him for leadership. Okay, And there were several times that enemies would come on them. And God would come and bring the people together, raise up an army, defeat the enemies, even though they were 12 separate tribes. And so what God was doing worked as long as the people would trust him. But during the time of the judges, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Most of the people turned away from God, turned away from his leadership, away from his law, and said, we're not going to do what he wants us to do. We're going to do what we want to do. And so God allowed their enemies to come in and to oppress them and to take them into captivity and to spoil them. Uh, there were times that he allowed famines and different things that came in. And whenever those things came and things got bad enough, then what did they do? Do it. Okay, they went back to the Lord and then the Lord raised up 
a deliverer, a judge. And so we have the time of, um, of Ehud and Jephthah and Samson and Gideon and all those other ones, right? And so you have all of those guys that God was raising up somebody to lead them during a time of difficulty, during a time that they were turning back to him to lead them out of the troubles they'd gotten themselves into. Okay? So God was still leading them. They were still a theocracy. And that brings us down to where we're at now in 1 Samuel. Samuel was the last of the judges. He was a priest, and he was the first of the prophets. Okay? So he had a kind of a threefold uh, job there that he was doing. But whenever Samuel came, he didn't come by the normal means. Anyone remember how Samuel got there? Am I asking too many questions tonight? I'm just trying to Yeah, you've got a couple of distractions there, right? Well, there's a reason I'm bringing this out, but we have a man by the name of Eli. Remember Eli? Eli was a priest, and he was a man of God, a pretty good one. And um, he led the people pretty well, but he didn't lead his household well. And so his sons were wicked, and the Lord uh, slew his sons. Remember that? Yes. But because he didn't reprove his sons, he didn't rebuke his sons, he didn't correct them in their ways, they were corrupt, they were wicked. And so God brought Samuel into Eli's tutelage, I guess we could say, to be his um, his disciple, his uh, Eli to be his mentor, if you will. So I guess, in a way, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Eli wasn't doing good with his son, so give him somebody else's son, but it worked out. But Samuel was called of God. Remember, God called to him in the middle of the night, and, and Eli instructed him, say, Lord, here am I. And God said, I've got good plans for you, Samuel. Not so good for Eli, but good plans for you. And God used Samuel in a mighty way. But whenever Samuel got old, he was he was facing the same thing that Eli did. Because we're going to find out in our, our study tonight that Samuel's sons were wicked as well. And because Samuel's sons were wicked, uh, the people of Israel didn't have patience for God to do as he did with Samuel to raise up another man but instead, they decided they needed to go a different way because they had been getting further and further and further from God all along. And they decided rather than allowing God to be their king, that they wanted kings over them like all of the nations around them. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of going to be our focus tonight. And so my timeline that I was telling you, uh, Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ, Moses, 1,500 years David, which is kind of the area that we're getting into now, 1,000. Then the return from captivity, about 500. And so we've got 500-year increments. If you just want a a simple way of looking at the Bible here, knowing when things happened, Uh, 2,000 years at Abraham, 1,500 at Moses, 1,000 at David, 500 at the return of captivity. And then, of course, Jesus right around 180, well, 30. BC, I don't know. <laughs> You've got before Christ and after his death, he didn't live at all in one year. So the numbers aren't completely there. So those are just rough estimates of where we're at. Okay. 
And so anyway, as I said, from Joshua to Samuel, they had no central head and God was meant to be their king. And they started growing tired of that system. They started thinking that they had a better way to do it. But if they would have only followed God, God had promises for them, right? If they would have only followed God and said, okay, we're going to go his way. We're going to trust him to protect us and provide for us. Uh, and God had proved that he could protect them and provide for them, right? right. If they would have continued uh, year by year, generation by generation, trusting God for his provision and his protection, they could have thrived right. in the land of Canaan. Yeah. But instead, they wanted to seek their own way. And that brings us into... 1 Samuel chapter number 8, which is where we're going to be reading today. 1 Samuel 8, verse 1 says, And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba, and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, which is money and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in, the, in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people, in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. So that was kind of a poignant message from God is, uh, Samuel, I know you're upset. I know you're hurt about this but they're treating you the same way they've been treating me for the past 500 years. And so anyway, verse number nine, now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that ask of him a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself for his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands, and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries, and to be cooks, and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards, and your olive yards, even the very best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have, which ye shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Okay, verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us 
and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every, uh, every man to his city. So as we look at this passage, the people of Israel have been thinking on this for a little while. They have been uh, looking at all the nations around them, and they have been, for one thing, they've been afraid because they didn't have a standing army. They didn't have a ordered military in any way. They didn't have any kind of a hierarchy in there that anyone that would stand before their armies that would be captain over all of them who would lead them off to battle. The closest thing that they had to a leader at that time was Samuel. And Samuel wasn't a political leader. He wasn't a military leader. He was a spiritual leader. God was the one that was the captain of the host. He was the one that ordered their armies. They couldn't see that. They couldn't see that whenever they conquered Canaan, that God was the one over that. That whenever Gideon slew his multitudes with uh, 300 men, they couldn't see that God was the one that was in control. All the different times that God had delivered them and provided for them, they hadn't figured out that they could trust God to protect them. They said, we need a king over us like all of the lands around us because the lands around us are a threat to us. We see the Ammonites that are coming to march against us. We see the Philistines that are a problem to us. And unless we have something to bind us together as one nation, all of our loose tribes are going to be uh, disorganized and they're going to be a, an easy target for these people that are around us. So rather than trust God, we need to do something. And this is the kind of the theme of this. This is their idea is we have to do something. Why? Because we can't trust God. And this is where the problem lies in this. But they come at it with good excuses. Do you notice they're good excuses? It actually sounds, sounds legit. Because they said, Samuel, you're old. You're not going to be here forever. You're going to die. And we need leadership. And so that sounds good, right? You need to plan for the future. You need to look ahead of you. You need to figure out what's going to happen a little down the line. You can't just wait until you fall in the middle of something. So they said, Samuel, whenever you're gone, we're not going to have any leadership. Because look at your sons who you've put in to be judges. They are corrupt. Well, one reason why the ju or why the sons were corrupt was because all the people were corrupt, right? Yeah. I wonder... I know with Eli, God actually told Eli that Eli was at fault. He said, you saw them going astray. You didn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. I wonder about Samuel, though, why his sons turned out the way they did. We don't have any indicator that God has held Samuel accountable for this. We do know that for some 25 years, Samuel has ridden in a circuit, basically. He was a circuit-riding preacher. Yeah. And he had a circuit that he would go from year to year, stopping in all the different areas throughout Israel to be a prophet and God's representative to the people. And so that would have kept him pretty busy and would have taken him away from home a lot. So maybe he wasn't as present as what he needed to be. Uh, in the passage that we read here, it says that his sons were down in Beersheba. That was in the southernmost part of Israel. And uh, Samuel was up in Ramah, which would have been... Uh, not too far away from Jerusalem, toward the center of Israel. And so his sons had settled a good ways away from him, 
And so maybe they put some distance between them and dad so dad couldn't see what was going on. But it seems like everybody else knew what was going on, so surely dad did. If they were coming and saying, hey, your sons are corrupt, they are taking bribes, they are chasing after money, they are perverting justice, then Samuel had to have known about it. But anyway, whenever they come to him and they said, you're old, you're going to die, your sons aren't going to be able to replace you, we need to do something about this. Do you see what the problem with that is? What would have been the best solution for them if they saw that Samuel was going to die and his sons were corrupt, they didn't have a replacement? What would have been a good solution for the people of Israel? You want to have a suggestion? You think demanding a king was the top top of the list of what they should have done? Okay. And so seeking after God to raise somebody up, that would be a, the best way, right? So they were kind of on a good track. Samuel, you're old, you're going to die. Your children, they are corrupt. We need leadership when you're gone. So we need you to intercede on our behalf, go to God, and ask him to raise up somebody else to lead us, right? But their concern wasn't on having godly leadership. It wasn't on God doing something in there and bringing them the right direction. But the third thing that they said betrayed the first two. The first two sounded good. But the third thing that they said was to judge us like all the nations. We want to be like everyone that is around us. We want to be like the other countries because we don't want to be separate anymore. We are God's chosen people. We are supposed to be separate. We are supposed to be distinct. We are supposed to have God as our leader, but we don't want to do that. We see these countries around us that seem to be prospering quite well, and they are using it through military might. They have kings that are ruling over them and taking tribute and taxes and fighting wars and doing all these things, and that is attractive to us. And so, God, we're tired of the system that you have in place. We're not going to entrust you to bring up another godly leader. We want to find someone who is going to lead us like all the nations that are around us. And we can see where this is going wrong. Now, another question. You're all getting tired of questions, aren't you? Okay, another question. Was it wrong for them to want a king? Should we take a vote? Was it wrong for them to want a king? Was it against God's will for them to have a king as a country? Everybody's afraid to give me the wrong answer. No one will answer. Maybe Sarah and Emily think it's not wrong for them to want a king. Okay, so you're getting you're getting on the right track there. Yeah. Yeah. Suppose they wanted a king so badly that God actually gave him one. Okay. And that is a principle that God often gives us what we want, and that can sometimes be the greatest judgment on us to give us what we want. 
And uh, we find, yeah. we find, for instance, whenever the children of Israel murmured in the the uh, wilderness, that he gave them flesh. They wanted flesh to eat. They said, "There, our soul loathes this light bread," and said, "We want meat that we can eat meat." And God brought them quails up to till it said it came out of their nostrils. Okay, but it says that he uh, gave them their desire, but he sent leanness unto their soul. And so they got what they wanted, but they lost what they had, right? And so this is one of the things that happened here is if we are so uh, bent on getting something and we are so forceful saying, I know what's best for me, God, and I want this and I don't care what your will is. I don't care what you have to say about it, but I want this. Sometimes God will let us have it just to show us why he didn't want us to have it to begin with. Exactly. Right. But that brings us back to our original question. Was it against God's will for them to have a king? Okay. Just couldn't see him and see things physically like they did with everybody else. So to make it a non-trick question, was it against God's will for them to have a human king? I think so. I think he was supposed to be that king. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. I did. Okay. But something that we find is if we go back to Genesis 17, God's talking to Abraham, right? And in Genesis 17, God tells Abraham, kings shall come out of thee. Right? Right. Now, that could just be God's foreknowledge, right? In Genesis chapter 49, verse number 10, we find that uh, Jacob is giving his sons blessings before they die. And he says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And there are multiple times where Judah is the source of rule, that there's going to be a king, a lion of the tribe of Judah. All these different things that are prophesied and told ahead of time that there will be a king. But now, one one more passage before I go this direction. Deuteronomy chapter 17, this was Moses. And Moses, as he's speaking to the children of Israel, he tells them, whenever you get into the land that God's going to give you and you desire a king, this is how you go about choosing a king. And so God, through Moses and through the giving of the law and the different things, God actually gave them criteria for choosing a king. So I ask you again, was it against God's will for them to choose a king? I guess not if he gave them um, He gave them criteria for choosing a king, prophesied that was going to happen, right? Multiple times. So where does the problem come in? Well, that goes back to where we talked about the scepter shall not depart from Judah, right? So what tribe is the king supposed to come from? What tribe does Saul come from? From Benjamin, right? So whenever God, and I'm getting ahead of myself, that's chapter number nine, but whenever God leads them to Saul, Saul is a placeholder, right? Mm -hmm. Saul is a placeholder. 
their problem was not that they wanted a king. It was that they want a king now. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And the reason I bring this out is this is something that's very common for us today is we want what we want and we want it right now. Right. <laughs> and we don't want to take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. And we get in a hurry about things. And a lot of times God already has, well, not a lot of times, all the time, God's already got it figured out. All right. If we will trust him, if we will allow him to be God, if we will follow him, he's got it all sorted. He knows what he's going to do. And I, I talked about before that Eli uh, was a good priest, bad father. Mm -hmm. His sons were rejected, but God brought in Samuel. And they had good leadership, and the people of Israel had great respect unto Samuel, right? And Samuel lived throughout Saul's reign because they told him, they said, you're old, you're going to die, we need leadership, right? right. Who anointed David? Samuel. And so Samuel's life continued throughout David's anointing. No. Okay. No, that was later on. Okay. And so that was after Saul was, after Saul intruded into the priest's office, disobeyed God. Yeah. Yeah. And so Saul sinned against God, and God says, because of what you've done, I have rejected you. Yeah. But God knew from the very beginning that it wasn't going to be Saul's lineage. It wasn't going to be Saul's family. That was going to be the monarchy. It was going right. to be the one that continued to be king over Israel because Judah already had that place. Mm -hmm. But the people of Israel demanded they wanted a king right now. Mm -hmm. We will not have God ruling over us anymore. We want a man ruling over us. We want one, it says in uh, verse number... 20, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us. So tell us what to do. Go out before us, lead us into battle and to fight our battles. They had these high hopes for the king that we no longer want God telling us what to do. We no longer want him going before us and leading us into our battles. We no longer are trusting him to fight our battles for us. We want a man that will do that. And so God tells Samuel they have not rejected you. They've rejected me. This is where the problem comes in. They're not allowing God to orchestrate it. They're not allowing God to work out his steps. And we can see now, you know, a thousand years later, well, 3,000 years later, a thousand years before Christ, 3,000 years later, we're looking back at it in Scripture, and we can see what God's plan was that he was orchestrating back at that time. But they refused to just let God be God, and they refused to allow him to do what was right in God's eyes because they wanted what was right in their own eyes. And so this brought trouble upon them. And so God told Samuel, go ahead and give them what they want, but before you give it to them, give them a warning. Right. And do you notice what all he said that the kings would do? He says they're going to... Uh, they're going to take your sons and your daughters to be their servants. Mm -hmm. They're going to take of all of your uh, harvest, and they're going to take a tenth of your harvest. They're going to take a tenth of your animals. And so God said, okay, we need a tenth, a tithe to maintain the Levites, right? Mm -hmm. And so for an entire tribe, 
God says you're going to take a tenth for that. But now for one household, see how much more man's going to demand of them than what God does? How much rougher of a taskmaster that man is going to be than what God is going to be? And so God says, I want one-tenth to take care of the Levites and the priests in the temple. Mm -hmm. And Samuel warns him ahead of time and says, when you get a king, he's going to take a tenth just for his household. And not only is he going to take a tenth for his household, he's also going to take your children. He's going to make them to be soldiers. They're going to run before his chariot. They're going to be uh, his human shields, if you will. They're going to die in battle fighting for him. You say you want him to fight your battles, but he's going to use your men and your children to fight the battles. And so he gives them an overview of all these things. They're going to take your land. They're going to do all these different things. And we see that all of that ends up happening. In verse 17, verse 18, And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. It's going to come to the place where it becomes too much, Mm -hmm. that the king is going to be too rough, he's going to take too much, and you're going to cry out and God's not going to hear you. And that happens under Rehoboam, right? And they cry out and they say, Solomon to... Uh, maintain all of his building programs and this lavish lifestyle has taxed us so heavily. And they say, Rehoboam, make our load a little lighter. Mm -hmm. And Rehoboam, of course, after all the consulting and everything, says, I'm going to be even tougher on you than what Solomon was. And they start crying out by reason of this. And the kingdom ends up splitting as a result of this. And God allows it to happen. He allows them to reap what they had sown. Right, And so after God tells them ahead of time, he lays this all out. He says, this is how what you're desiring is going to turn out for you. And their response in verse number 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, nay, but we will have a king over us. And so whenever we look at this passage and we see their response to this, after Samuel lays out clearly all that's going to happen, He warns them and says, this isn't going to go well for you. There's going to be dire consequences. They said, nah, I think I can escape it. No, I don't think it's going to be that bad. They look at it and they think that maybe they're going to be the ones that escape it. Because they said, this king, he's going to judge us. He's going to go out before us. He's going to fight our battles. He's going to make us even with these other nations. They seen only the positives. They seen only the good. And so why do I bring that out? Do we not do the same thing as human beings? Do we not do the same thing even as God's children today? Whenever we look at God's word and he shows us wisdom, he shows us all of this knowledge through his word. He gives us insight through men such as Saul throughout David and his sins, throughout the mistakes of all these people in Scripture, and we find out that whenever we do these things, that there are horrible consequences that come as a result of it, and we say, but it won't happen to me. Right? And we're good at doing that, and we look at just the positives and say, well, I know that God's Word says this, but how many people have gotten in inappropriate relationships 
And the Bible has all kinds of warnings against those and the heartaches and the problems that come as a result of that. And they say, no, but I want it and I think I'll be okay. How many people uh, make unwise decisions with their families, with their finances, with different things? And they say, I know what the Bible says about it, but I don't care. I'm going to do it my way. I think I'll be fine. I see the benefits and I'm just going to choose to ignore all the things that God has warned is going to come as a result of these bad decisions, these bad choices, this me following after the world's methods and the world's way of doing things. I know it says this is going to happen, but I don't think it'll happen to me. And the next thing you know, they are reaping what they have sown. Right? And so there's great application for us as we see this. And so as we see the children of Israel here, if they would have lived by God's promises, they would have lived according to his word, they could have reaped the rewards. They could have had a a great blessing living in the promised land, letting God be their king, but they chose to do it their own way. We could be living in this life here and in eternity, living by God's principles, according to God's promises, allowing God to be our king, and we could reap the blessings and benefits of that. But we say, no, I'm not going to do it God's way. I want to do it the way that the rest of the world does. Right? See, one of the problems that Israel had is it was a lot easier for them to submit to the authority of a man that they could see than a God that they couldn't. To submit to a man that they could choose, that they could manipulate, that they could relate to, than a God that is holy and just and right. And a lot of times in our own lives, it is easier for us to look at the way that is accepted, the way that we can see around us, the way that the people who we uh, are friends with, the people that we talk to, the people that we work to or, or work with, whenever we see the way that they're conducting their lives, we can relate to that and we can see that and we say, okay, that works. Human wisdom, human reasoning, it works in our minds, it works in our understanding But then we start reading the principles of God's word and we start talking about faith and uh, allowing God to lead us and trusting his principles. And we're like, I don't know that that works in our world today. I don't know that I want to follow that. And so we start pushing that aside and saying it's easier to do it the world's way. It's easier for us to do like the nations. It's easier easier for us to do like the people that are around us than to allow God to rule in our lives. And so we make the same mistake that the children of Israel do, or the same mistake that the children of Israel did, and then we wonder why we have the problems that we have. We wonder why there's consequences that keep cropping up in our lives after we have chosen to do things the world's way rather than do things God's way. Whenever we have said we don't want God to rule over us, We want man to rule over us. I'm not going to do it the way that God has said, but I'm going to allow other people to rule and I will allow other people to be God in my life. Because it's easier to have somebody tell you what to do. It's easier to have somebody be the one that's in charge of you rather than you submitting yourself to God and allowing him to lead, isn't it? How many people will completely sell out their brain, basically, and their lives to somebody else and allow them to call the shots in their lives. 
This happens in religion a lot. And it's just plug yourself in and do what a man tells you to do. And if you do that, I don't have to worry about what the Bible says. I don't have to worry about what God wants for me. I don't have to worry about any of these other things. I'll just let this person rule and reign over me. And it may be an individual. It may be society in itself. Our peers and the culture that's around us because we just kind of throw our brain in the bin and allow somebody else or some group of someone's to dictate how we're going to rule our lives rather than seeking after God individually, accountable to God, and allowing God to direct our steps, allow God to show us what he'd have us to do and what he'd have us to be. It's easier, isn't it? We outsource it. But we can see the results that come about by doing this. And so anyway, you give them the warning, he lets them have their way. And even though they knew that Samuel was a man of God, even though they knew he was a prophet, even though they knew that what he said come to pass, they completely ignored it. Yeah. You look at the Bible, you look at his track record, you know what it says, you ignore it and you press on with what you want to do, and then you wonder why things fall apart. And so whenever we just see the seeming benefits and we are blind to the costs, we are going to end up in the much the same way that we find the people of Israel here at this time. So anyway, God allows them to make a king. He tells them what kind of king they're going to be. They say, we don't care about the consequences. We're going to rush headlong into it. And so at the very end of what we look at today, he sends everyone away to their own city. And God puts uh, puts in play, I guess we could say, his plan to bring about what they are desiring. Okay? And I'm not going to go completely into chapter number nine, but I want to look ahead just a little bit and look at one specific lesson in this. But whenever we start looking at Saul, chapter nine, verse number one, it says, Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of uh, uh, Zeror, the son of Bechareth, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people. And so what we find whenever we start looking at Saul, the children of Israel had said, we don't want to wait on God's man. We don't want to wait on God's plan. We don't want to do what he has said for us to do. We want what we want, and we want it right now. And so as long as they are in that mindset, as long as they're in that mentality, and as long as God is giving them what they are wanting, the very man that he chooses for them highlights this very fact that they weren't seeking after God. They weren't seeking after the things of God. They were seeking after a man like all the nations around them. His outstanding feature, he was good looking and he was tall. It says that he was head and shoulders over all the other uh, men of Israel. He was the tallest man in the country. 
So if you're wanting someone to rule over you, if you're wanting someone to fight your battles, to intimidate the enemy, to unify the troops, get the biggest, baddest guy you can find. And not only that, but we find that Saul was a man that was uh, driven by his lusts, by his emotions, by his fears. He was a very insecure man. And all of those things ran parallel with the nation of Israel and what their, uh, what their personality was at that time as a nation. Saul fit with who Israel was as a people at that time. To highlight that even further, uh, I'm not going to continue reading, but what happens in chapter number nine is that Saul uh, is working for his father on the farm. They have servants, they have wealth, they have riches, and they have donkeys. Okay? Now we're going to find that whenever God chooses a man after his own heart, he chooses a shepherd, a man who has worked with sheep. But at this point in time, God is picking out a man that is looking for donkeys. I kind of find that humorous. Looking at the way that Israel is acting at this time and the way that Israel has stubbornly rebelled against God time after time, he says, I don't need a shepherd for them at the moment. I need a guy that's going out looking for some runaway donkeys. And so I find that fitting. But anyway, as they're going out and looking for donkeys, he's got his servant with him, and they can't find the donkeys. They're getting desperate, trying to find them. And the servant says in verse number six, Behold, now there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that saith, or all that he saith, cometh surely to pass. Now let us go thither. Peradventure he can show us our way that we should go. Now, this is Samuel. He's in a, a city, more than likely in Ramah. And Saul in the country, I, I'm looking, I, I can't remember the, the place that he was at at the time. But anyway, if you look at the two places where Saul was living and where Samuel was living, it was about eight to 10 kilometers apart. That's not very far apart, is it? So you've got all this going on with the nation of Israel looking for a king and Samuel saying, I'm going to find you a king. And whenever Saul is looking for the donkeys, he has no clue that Samuel even exists. He doesn't even know that Samuel is there. And so his servant, not Saul, his servant comes to Saul and says, we can't find the donkeys, but there is a man of God that is here. And Saul's response is almost like, well, that's news to me. I didn't know anything about this. And so we see his interest in the things of God from the fact that he had no clue that Samuel was even in the area, that this look, this hunt for a king was even going on. He was oblivious to it all. And so he wasn't looking for God. He wasn't searching after God. He was just going about looking for donkeys. And the reason I bring this out is that the children of Israel had gotten to the place that they had ceased caring about the things of God. They had ceased caring about searching for his will and for his plan, and they weren't looking for God anymore. They were looking for their own ambitions, their own way. They were looking for their donkeys. 
And so it's amazing to me how much Saul has in common with the people of Israel at that time. And so God says, if they want a king, I'm going to give them the kind of king that they want, the kind of king that represents them, not the kind of king that represents me. And so what we find is whenever uh, Saul comes uh, to Samuel, Samuel tells him, donkeys have been found, don't worry about it. But I want you to come with me for a while, I've been waiting on you. And Saul is completely oblivious to all of this. He has no clue why Samuel has any interest in him. It'd probably be pretty amazing for him to hear uh, Samuel revealing these things, how much Samuel knows about Saul. Whenever Saul thought this was just a coincidence that he stumbled across him while he was searching for donkeys. But anyway, in verse number 20 of chapter 9, and we'll get into this more next week, he tells, Samuel tells Saul, and on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on me? He says, you're everything that Israel is looking for. That's what he tells Saul. He says, you're everything that Israel is looking for. So what is the qualifications as God is picking Saul for Israel? He is matching them up based on what Israel is looking for, on what Israel is like, on the way that Israel is acting. He's giving them what they want. And now he's going to use it. He's going to use Saul to prepare his man, David. But Saul was never meant to be part of the plan. The children of Israel are going to reap some of the consequences of having crazy King Saul. David's going to reap some of the consequences of it. But he's also going to reap some of the benefits because here's the amazing thing, that even though they went against God, even though they did their own thing, even though God allowed something against his will, he worked it together with his will to bring about good and to bring David to the place where David could become king. And so David was going to be of the house of Judah, of the tribe of Judah, and his family, his household, was going to be king over Israel. So all along, God was in control, even with the things that he allowed for their judgment, for their uh, their correction. He still worked it together, even for their good. And that should be a little bit of comfort for us whenever we are... That, now, that doesn't mean for us to go and do our own thing that God will treat us good anyway. But that even whenever we are hard-hearted, even whenever we are stubborn, even when we do stupid things, that God can still take those things and work those together into his plan and for our good and for our future. And he does that with the children of Israel and with Saul and with David. So just a, a final thought on this as we close. Um, the children of Israel chose Saul in place of God. They chose, they said, we don't want God to be our king. We want Saul to be our king. They took Saul, or excuse me, they took God off the throne, put Saul there. We need to learn from that and realize that God should be the one that's in charge. God's word should be what we go back to and that we trust and that we hold dear to because it is right. It is infallible. We are going to be able to rely on what it says. No matter what the world around us says, no matter what people try to lead us astray in doing, they will tell you, you don't need to follow God's word. You don't need to worry about the things that he says are detrimental or harmful to us. It won't actually happen. And you say, yeah, it will. 
And so regardless of what the rest of the world wants, regardless of what everybody else is doing, we need to decide, like Joshua back in Joshua 24, that as for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to do what he says, and I'm not going to allow other things to take the place of God in my life. I'm not going to allow other people. I'm not going to set someone else on the throne of my life besides God because God is a far greater king than anything else. God is a far more reliable, dependable leader than I am or anyone else is. And so we need to make sure that we are evaluating our lives and saying, who am I following? Who am I allowing to rule and reign in my life? Have I chosen to kick God off of his rightful place in my life and put someone else there? Am I allowing, am I looking out at the world around me and saying, I want to do things like everyone else is doing it. It seems like it's working okay for them. I'm going to spend my life pursuing what everyone else is doing instead of the things that God would have me to pursue. And if we do that, we are in for difficulties. We're in for trouble. We have taken our eyes off of that which is important, and it is going to cost us in the long run. Okay? And so we can learn from Saul. We can learn from the children of Israel. God would have raised up another man. He would have raised up David. They got impatient. They got uh, to the place where they thought they knew what was best. They decided what they needed, and God allowed them to have it. And they would have been better off if they would have waited on David to take the throne. So with that, I better stop there. But does anyone have any anything to add this evening? Any comments? Anything? Okay. Well, if no one's got anything, let's go ahead and go, to the Lord, in prayer. We'll call it a night. Dear Lord, we come to you again today. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. We thank you for your word and. Lord, that you've recorded all of these uh, different uh, different stories in your word. I know they're more than stories, but you've recorded all these things, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you've put them there for our learning, for our uh, understanding, Lord, and we can see their mistakes and we can see their successes. Help us, Lord, to learn from those things. Lord, help us, Lord, not to get impatient, not to seek to be like the world around us and to throw you off the throne, but help us, Lord, to be patient and allow you to have your perfect work in our lives. Help us, Lord, to, to honor your will and your way and your word, Lord, that you could do that which is right in your eyes in our lives, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for uh, your love for us, Lord, and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.